Welcome to In Transition, a program dedicated to the practice of content communication in the public sector. Here's your host, David Pembroke. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to In Transition, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke, and thank you very much for joining me. Today, we will explore a particularly interesting part of content communication. It relates to the use and influence of what is now being described or people being described as influencers. How do we get and reach and use and leverage the power of that authentic following that so many of these people have. And we are speaking to Matt Hurl, who is the digital sales director of Tribe, which is a technology platform that connects brands, not-for-profits, national associations, and potentially even government with micro-influencers, which are those people who have a view, they have a point uh, of view, and they also have, most importantly, a following that can help those brands, those not-for-profits, those national associations, and as I say, potentially governments to achieve their objectives. He joins me on the line now. Matt, thanks for joining me in transition. Hi, David. How are you? Thanks for having me. No problem at all. So influencers, they really, they've come of age in so many ways, haven't they? You know, it's been a practice of public relations for years and years and years to try to get the right people to attend your event or to speak on your behalf. Absolutely. But, but, but influencers have really found a real niche, haven't they? Yeah, look, they have, and it is constantly evolving. Um, you know, here at Tribe, we're constantly talking about the evolution from socialite media back to uh, what it really should have been the first time around, and that's obviously social media. Uh, so we find that um, brands are now starting to move away from top-tier celebrities and, and traditional ambassadors uh, and starting to move towards everyday people that have, like you said, built up their following over time um, in, an, in a really authentic and genuine way. That's interesting because celebrity is so much of what drives traffic on the internet. Why is it that people or you're finding that we're now moving away from celebrity? Yeah, look, obviously when you work with celebrities, you have uh, the opportunity to get earned media and, and PR off the back of that. However, we've seen that influencers with smaller followings actually generate a much higher percentage of engagement than their top-tier counterparts. So, um, you know, someone with three or 4,000 followers is going to have um, three to four or five or six percent engagement compared to someone with a hundred thousand followers who might be lucky to have one or two percent engagement. So, based off that sort of data and those insights, brands are now changing how they work with influencers because you could spend five grand to work with one, uh, you know, top tier or celebrity influencer or insta famous person who might have a half a million followers. Um, but for the same amount of, of investment today, you could actually activate. 20 or 30 citizen influencers and get the same combined social reach but at a much higher percentage of engagement. And not only that, the authenticity is much greater with these smaller pockets of influence. Um, these people tend to um, uh, obviously have a much higher percentage of engagement with their community because they're more likely to respond to them, they're more likely to bump into them in the street, they're more likely to comment back. So it's not this faceless celebrity that is... Um, 
making a genuine product uh, recommendation. It's a real person. And for that reason, the sentiment within these micro-influence posts actually tends to be a lot more positive as well. So there's a couple of reasons. One's the data. Uh, the other is the sentiment, um, and third, I guess, the authenticity. So do you then track that influence all the way through to the the impact of a particular um, micro-influencer on a business objective? It really depends on the client, and obviously everyone has different objectives. We tend to use cost per engagement as the most common benchmark in our industry. So what does it cost for a like, share or comment? However, we've worked with brands like Helga's who uh, were able to get sales data and they would look on look at month-on-month sales data and, and, and using a tribe uh, or using micro-influencers uh, at scale, um, they were able to get a 9% sales uplift. Uh, similarly, Swiss Wellness did a campaign with us recently and and again, they use the volume of micro-influencers to complement some of the top-tier celebrities that they work with. And they saw uh, an uplift of 30 and 45% on, on two SKUs uh, that they were using right. via our platform. So so pretty significant sales uplift we're seeing in certain categories. Uh, definitely bigger brands that are you know launching new SKUs tend to work the best. Um, but we also have smaller brands that... Um, might be trying to drive e-commerce sales, and, and they might get a slight, you know, slight uplift in web traffic. But what they'll see is the conversion rate on that traffic is really significant, and that's because when you're using influencers, you're really tapping into the trust that they've built up with their followers over time, and that trust in the, you know, in in the online world, just like in the real world, can't be sped up, and so. Um, that's probably the biggest value that you're leveraging when you are working with influencers because a, a trusted recommendation is kind of the holy grail of, of what marketers look for. But then how do you manage that trusted recommendation or indeed translate that trusted recommendation to the attribution levels around, you mentioned Helga's bread there, 9% lift. How were you able to... Um, attribute the work of the micro-influencer and connect it so accurately um, to that lift in sales? Often, uh, when it comes to FMCG products like that, often it it comes down to what else they're doing with regards to their marketing in that time period. Um, Both of those brands didn't do any other above-the-line media uh, when they ran their tribe campaign and they weren't doing anything else in their marketing um, apart from point of sale in store. And so it's very hard to directly attribute it um, right back to tribe uh, or to, to micro-influencers. Um, but what they can do is they can see uh, what happens when they do uh, nothing and then what happens when they made that one controlled uh, shift in their yeah. marketing uh, strategy. And so that, that helps them measure it. Other brands might track the growth of their online communities um, on their social accounts. They might track web traffic. They might track uh, or they might use a clickable link um, if they are leveraging influencers on Facebook or Twitter. You can obviously put a, a trackable URL in those platforms. Within Instagram, it's a little bit harder because you can't put a trackable link in a comment. So what we encourage most brands to do is actually drive the consumer down the funnel to their handle and then put a trackable link in the brand's handle. Um, one of the things we avoid or encourage brands to avoid doing is putting a link in the influencer's handle because 
after 24 hours or 48 hours of it being there, um, the influencer will remove it and then the brand's not going to get any more benefit from that post, whereas a lot of Instagram content lives on um, for weeks and, and months. Um, so it's important to look at the long-term strategy with that content. So how do you manage the risks of engaging a micro-influencer? Well, it's a really good question and, and I think one of the best parts about uh, micro-influencers is you're actually spreading your risk out because you're going to be working with a volume of them uh, as opposed to one or two celebrities. Um, the biggest thing that we do is we encourage influencers to only represent brands that they genuinely love as a consumer. We say that unless they're prepared to spend their own money on something, they actually shouldn't be recommending that their followers go out and buy it. So that undertone of, of authenticity is probably one of the biggest ways that um, that we can manage it. The second thing is that these individuals have built up their following over years and years of stunning content curation and creation. Um, so they know intimately what their followers genuinely love and they know the type of content that they respond to and they're really careful to ensure that they, they don't burn uh, that trust that they've built up with their following over time. It's not like they've been on the Big Brother or the Block or the Bachelor and, and, and got, you know, a large amount of followers really quickly. Um, they've really invested time and energy to, to build up that following. So they're careful about what they recommend. Uh, we do a lot of education with influencers around being authentic and transparent and genuine. Um, but the biggest thing that our platform offers is the ability for brands to actually vet all of the content before it goes live to the consumer. So an influencer will go out, create some content, pitch it to a brand, a brand will review it, uh, and then either approve it to be published live by the influencer or they'll decline it if it doesn't meet the brand guidelines. So how, how do you um, define a micro-influencer? How big an audience do you have to have to be able to present yourself as, a, as an influencer? So for our platform, we've defined a micro-influencer as any person with 3,000 followers across Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. They're the three platforms that, uh, that our system plugs into. And, and that could be across any vertical. It could be health, beauty, fitness, fashion, travel, um, parental advice, uh, food, you name it. There's a million different verticals, uh, you know, on social media. Um, and basically, uh, when, um, when an influencer downloads our app, so anyone can download the Tribe app, for example, uh, and connect their socials. And when you connect your socials, uh, our tech screens all the accounts to make sure that your followers are genuine and authentic. Um, and to make sure that all of the uh, engagement that is represented in your accounts is, is genuine and authentic as well. So how many micro-influencers then would there be in, in Australia? You know, so we work pretty closely with Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and, and we've been throwing this question out to them uh, over the last couple of years and Based off the data and insights we've got, we think that there'd be at least 250,000 Aussies with 3,000 followers or more today. Um, and that number is constantly growing. And, and uh, so we think we've only seen the tip of the iceberg of what's to come with, with this whole influencer and micro-influencer movement. 
Yeah, right. Well, that's that's a stunning potential growth um, for the use of influencers. But I'm interested. Obviously, at the moment, it's 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 very much focused, or you're delivering your particular uh, platform to the fast moving consumer goods. Our audience is very much focused in the government space. Could you see a role or an opportunity, perhaps, for government to be using? micro influencers or even media influencers or any sort of influencer in order to achieve, you know, their policy, their program, their service or their regulatory objectives? Yeah, look, absolutely, David. Surprisingly, we've actually seen early uptake from um, a number of different government departments here in Australia. Uh, You know, last year we had a Victorian government campaign that was all about um, promoting a child safety message, you know, for, for never leaving children in cars across hot Aussie summer's days. Uh, that particular campaign was executed by a leading PR company out of Melbourne. But interestingly enough, we saw that PR company took a two-pronged approach. They had um, a top-tier celebrity who was the face of the campaign, and she was fantastic at getting media down to the launch day from a traditional PR perspective. But then they used Tribe to activate 30 citizen influencers who were genuine mums uh, that took the pledge to never leave their kids in cars. And those 30 mums had over um, uh, over 2 million combined followers. They got over 20,000 people engaging in that content. And it created a real community movement from their followers of people taking the pledge to never leave their kids in cars. And I think it even went on to never leaving dogs in cars and things like that. And so... That was our first example of it, and, and there was a couple of interesting learnings from that particular campaign. We saw, um, firstly, the 30 citizen influencers that they approved were approved and published content so quickly that it actually hacked Twitter trending because that works on velocity rather than volume. Um, and then secondly, we saw that the, the investment that they made in, in citizen influencers actually resulted in a 25 times uh, output compared to that top-tier celebrity uh, that they invested in. So um, that was one example. We've seen, uh, again, recently uh, the national government did a Girls uh, Make Your Move campaign promoting empowerment uh, you know, in females, and that was amazing. They spent uh, just under 50 grand um, across 150 citizen influencers uh, to get a social reach of over five million, and they had over one hundred and fifty thousand people around Australia engaging in in this community message, which was amazing um, for that sort of investment. Um, so we've seen it across different educational sectors. We've seen it in in um, children's education around encouraging parents to read. We've seen it with tourism bodies encouraging people to travel to different regions. Um, so I think we've, it's only the tip of the iceberg uh, of what's to come in that government sector. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested though in how you again getting back to the risk, you know, idea. How how did you convince government that the risks were, were manageable, that there wasn't going to be, say, in your you know child safety campaign, that those thirty citizen influencers weren't going to go rogue and start making comments about you know, other government policy or indeed the 150 citizens influencers who were involved in the Girls Make Your Move. How were you able to to manage that relationship between the client, between um, yourself as the platform and indeed those influencers to make sure that there was a, 
um, an agreed position or an agreed discussion that uh, they're all prepared to get involved in? Well, it's probably twofold. Firstly, within our particular platform, uh, influencers operate under a really strict code of, of um, ethics and, and rules. Our terms and conditions, you know, dictate that influencers need to adhere to um, what the brand is asking for, as well as being genuine, authentic and transparent, which I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, but the biggest thing is that brands and anyone signing off on content gets the opportunity to vet the influencer before they actually approve them. So they can look at the image, uh, the exact image that the influencer is going to post or video or GIF or whatever the, the piece of content is. They can look at the exact copy um, that they're going to attach to that image. They can scroll through that influencer's feed and look at what they've presented uh, to their followers in the past. Um, and, and it's about seeing if that's a conversation that they want um, their message to be involved in or included in. And then uh, brands have the opportunity to participate in that conversation as well. So once an influencer has posted a piece of content, um, our terms and conditions um, encourage them to uh, answer questions and respond naturally to their audience as they normally would, even if it was a non-sponsored post. Uh, however, um, you know, government departments could also enter that conversation um, if they wanted to or if they wanted to point people in, in a particular uh, direction. What we've seen is that because they are smaller, uh, more genuine pockets of influence, um, influencers do what what is what is genuine. So, so they're only really um, talking about things that they do believe in. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think so that I, I think, think that point of being able to sign off and to be able to look at it and be able to say, okay, well, okay, this one, you know, that slate of um, content that you've put forward, we can now prove that off the platform, so away it goes. So there is that degree of control before it is published. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, influencers often will submit content, and then a brand or, or a brand manager will give them feedback, and they'll edit it slightly so that it is, you know, adhering to brand guidelines. Um, within our platform, you know, brand managers can invite legal teams in to come in and review the content and, and help approve or decline it. So there's, there's a number of different tools that we're offering uh, our clients and partners um, to be able to, to vet it and to make sure that it is exactly what they want published out there to the, to the consumer. So how, what's your recommendation to people? And I suppose you know, maybe this is a bit of an unfair question without sort of knowing whatever the, the particular business objective is, but how do you position people with this idea of, of using influencers as part of a, a mix of uh, various options that you might have? It's a really – it's a good question and, and I think, it, you know, it's a fair one to be honest. Basically what we're seeing in terms of trends is that Brands are starting to add influencer activity to almost every campaign that they do. It's not necessarily the biggest part of the media spend, um, but but a lot of brands that we're working with are actually pushing more money into this area because consumers want to hear from other consumers. You know, they trust it so much more than a branded message. It's the reason that third-party websites and review websites, you know, are, are growing so quickly. Um, and ultimately, if a brand can control their messaging in third-party environments like social media, then um, that's kind of the, the holy grail of what you shoot for in marketing. So 
from our experience, we're seeing that most campaigns or most media budgets are starting to um, add influencer activity um, to to every single campaign. The one the one thing I would say in terms of how you use social media is that it's not necessarily um, your traditional media brief. You really need to uh, try and get influencers to do authentic recommendations and share their experience of something authentic as opposed to getting them to spread uh, a media message or, or some other sort of campaign creative that, that a market has already come up with. So we always encourage our clients to empower the, the creator to, to create um, stunning content because that's what they do and that's why their followers follow them. Um, and that tends to work really, really well, nine times out of ten, whereas if you try and get an influencer to simply share a piece of content that's been created for a TVC or for a billboard or something like that, in a social media environment, that'll just flop. Um, so it really does need to be bespoke creative that is authentically created by um, the influencers that you know, brands decide to partner with. Now, you've given some indication of costs, but... Um, where might it sit, or like a, a an average influencer campaign with, say, a, a radio campaign or a TV campaign or a print campaign or a, a banner ad campaign? You know, where does yeah. it sit in terms of that sort of hierarchy of cost? Yeah, I mean, it's like anything. You can spend as much or as little as you want. Um, you know, with a platform like ours, we've, we've been around two years and we've had this growing um, database of influencers who are using the, the platform. So when we first started, brands were doing test and learn campaigns that might have been three to five grand uh, across a month or two month period. Um, now that we've got 20,000 plus influencers using our platform and that's growing every single day, we're seeing campaigns that are 30, 40, 50 grand uh, across that same period. So, um, you know, you can invest as much or as little as you want in influencer marketing. Uh, the power of a, a platform like uh, Tribe or the, the power of using a volume of micro-influencers is that you can create this word of mouth at scale. So you, you generate this grassroots, ground-up um, sort of messaging, which is a lot more effective than, than top-down uh, messaging. So if you're comparing that to radio or TV um, you know, it's probably going to be 5 or 10% of, of whatever a, a marketer might be spending in those other channels. Um, but we've seen that it's a really effective way for small to medium-sized brands to get much better bang for buck and to also approach uh, influencer marketing with an always-on view so that they can consistently be out there in the market um, messaging to their customers and potential customers. In your in your position there at Tribe, you're obviously seeing a lot of social media. I'm sure you you you're looking at it all the time. What's your view today on what are the you know the best practices around effective um, communication through social media? What are the what are the things that you should be doing, and what are the, some of the things that you shouldn't be doing? I think, firstly, you know, a lot of marketers, you know, we've done over, I think, nearly over 4,000 campaigns since we launched uh, Tribe uh, two years ago. And nearly every single brand manager that we've worked with has talked about a content crisis or content drought. Um, you know, they're, they're resourced to create four or five creative campaigns a year maximum, but with your own distribution channel of social, they now need to create 
uh, content every day or at least every week and no one can keep up. So um, by leveraging a volume of creators to come up with a broad range of content, you can allow your feed, uh, and it's called feed for a reason, you can allow your feed to, to stay beautiful and engaging. And if you're doing that, then your customers will want to, to hang around and they'll want to continue engaging with you. If brands are just taking cookie-cutter um, content that is created for a magazine ad or a billboard and trying to stuff it into a social environment, um, they'll lose every time. And so that's where, um, that's where you know, this huge uh, creator economy can potentially make huge waves um, in helping solve that problem. So in terms of my, my top three things, it would firstly be keep the content as social-centric as possible and not just trying to stuff uh, above-the-line uh, content into your social media. Uh, engage with the community and respond to their questions and, and, and um, don't be afraid to respond in a public environment so that the rest of the community understands um, that there is someone listening to them and hearing them. And, and then secondly, um, making sure that um, you are working with and being genuine and authentic and transparent in, in all of your social channels as well. Okay. Well, Matt Hurl from uh, Tribe, thank you very much for joining us this afternoon. I think it's very early days in the, in the life of the influence of the influencer and it seems like a pretty smart way and effective way for government and public sector organisations to reach out to audiences, given particularly through your platform, there is that opportunity of control that they can minimise the risks by being able to approve before publishing, but to really harness the uh, citizen-centred, citizen-creator um, to create, you know, authentic, um, useful, relevant, inspiring content that's going to get into parts of the web that, you know, perhaps your, you know, government-endorsed, uh, uh, site may never see these people. You know, they may never be able to get anywhere near their sort of audiences. So I think, uh, I think it's really going to grow, and and that's obviously the experience you're having at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've been overwhelmed with the uptake. I think we've got um, somewhere between twenty or thirty new campaigns coming to our platform every day, and and I'm um, really impressed, to be honest, with not only you know. Um, the private sector, but also the public sector in, in, in terms of how um, hungry they are to, to look for new ways to communicate with people. And, and I think we're just seeing the very beginning of what's to come, of yeah. exciting times. But it's such a, it's, it's a different mindset, isn't it? You know, we're, everyone was comfortable with buying, um, advertising from, you know, television stations, radio stations, newspapers, magazines. This is a sort of a step change to, to buying, well, it's not advertising, but buying advocacy direct from the public and paying the public to um, express a view about whatever it is that you, you might be seeking to um, propagate uh, throughout the community. Yeah, I mean, we, we always say that you've got a lot more customers than you do salespeople um, and you spend so much money trying to drive, you know, your, your customers down the funnel um, to become a customer. We think that influencer marketing and, and citizen influencers especially gives you the opportunity to turn that funnel on its side uh, to, to allow your most influential customers uh, or you know, consumers to, be, to, be, to become your most influential customers. Um, 
So, yeah, it's definitely the beginning of, of a massive shift in terms of how brands communicate with uh, their customers and potential customers. And just a final question, how much money can you make being a, an influencer? Uh, it's a good question. You know, our top influencer, who's a, a natural, she's a naturopath, um, she's made about 100 grand over the last 18 months. Um, and she's very consistent and, and passionate that she's um, able to, you know, wrap lots of different types of brands into her feed in the health and wellness space and travel space. And um, so, yeah, anywhere from a couple of grand a month to to 100 grand if you really want to focus uh, a lot of effort and time uh, into this space. Very good. I'm sure lots of people are now thinking, oh, I might have a crack at this. We've paid out over $3 million to our pool of talent in the last two years, and that's growing really quickly. So um, the fortune definitely favours the brave, and, and those that are getting in and, and putting the hard work in now will, will probably reap those rewards okay. over time. I can hear people switching off now, going back to their feeds and starting to think, you know, <laughs> I'm going to get into the creation business. But, Matt, thank you very much for spending uh, a bit of your time no with us today. I think it's a, a fascinating part of content and, and content communication and really getting, you know, people in that government and public sector space to start thinking about, okay, will we use influencers? How can we use influencers and how can we do them in such a way that it's going to help us to strengthen communities yeah. and improve the well-being of citizens? So, Matt, thanks very much for giving up some of your thank time you. today. And to you, the listener, My thank pleasure. you very much for coming to uh, In Transition again this week. A fantastic conversation there with Matt Hill. That is something to think about. I think that is a real sleeper and that could be a real innovation for your campaign, you know, to really think about going through, jumping onto Tribe and having a bit of a hunt about in your particular area, in those niche areas, because we live in the world of narrow in this day and age. We really need to be thoughtful and considerate about those audiences that we seek to engage with. And if we get narrow, I'm sure that you'll be able to find someone on Tribe who would be able to help you to achieve those business objectives of yours. So give it a try. Go out and give it a whirl. Anyway, thanks for that again. And we'll be back at the same time next week. But for the moment, it's bye for now. You've been listening to In Transition, the program dedicated to the practice of content communication in the public sector. For more, visit us at contentgroup.com.au.